Hi there, I'm Jennifer Stewart. And I'm Katherine Clark, and we're so glad that you're joining us today for The Honest Talk. We're excited to be bringing you conversations with some of North America's most inspiring women, and we are thrilled to be partnering with RBC as we do so. This podcast is about leaving behind the talking points and diving into the real, authentic, and unique personal stories of our guests. Stories which we hope might influence or inspire your own journeys. So let's get right to it. Heather Schofield is the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Toronto Star and an award-winning journalist who has spent her career covering economics, public policy, and national politics. Before taking on her current role at the Star, where she's also an economics columnist, Heather spent almost a decade with the Canadian press as their Ottawa Bureau Chief and social policy reporter. And before that, she was with the Globe and Mail. Heather has been named one of Ottawa's 100 most influential people. She's navigated her remarkable career in a changing industry and has been at the forefront of some of Canada's most historic moments. We are thrilled to have her with us today to share her insights, her experiences, and her advice on The Honest Talk. Heather, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Heather, these have been a very intense two years. Not only have we continued to deal with the global pandemic, but uh, the news just keeps uh, keeps happening. Uh, how, how are you doing? I'm fine. You know, I, at the beginning of the whole uh, pandemic, when it when it came upon us, I paused for a moment and and thought, okay, you know, I've built my career on covering crises. You know, I, I was financial crisis girl for the longest time, <laughs> and I you know thrive on on fast movement of news. And you know, I can do this. And I took a few steps right at the beginning of the pandemic to make sure that I could handle it. I, I just cut some extra things out of my life and got my head into all right. I've got to take care of you know how I live my life every day. Make sure I get enough sleep and all of that stuff, and I can do this who knew it was going to last for two years? So, you know, like I put that plan in place for a crisis that I kind of thought would last a few months. What do you mean you cut things out? Like what kind of things did you cut out? Well, commuting, first of all, which was cut out for me, obviously, but that saved me right away an hour a day at least. Mm -hmm. And there were other things, you know, picking up and dropping off kids that were also cut out. You know, I didn't have to do that anymore for, for quite a while because it was, it was uh, part of the part of the part of the shutdown, but you know, I just decided every morning instead of getting up at the crack of dawn I, I, to to go running, for example, before work. Well, I could push that out. Just maybe I could take an extra half hour, forty five minutes of sleep to 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 get my head around things <laughs> and be ready for the day, and it would still be okay. Um, it, I could still fit everything in. You know, I've covered quite a few financial crises in the past where I, you know, the great financial crisis in 2008, 2009, for example, was a lot of long hours, a lot of, you know, edge of the seats, uh, politics and, and economics and, and market movements that I always had to be, uh, you know, on top of. And I just realized that, that okay, you really have to have your head about you um, when when a crisis is developing like this. And, and so it was more, uh, you know, almost a mental exercise, too, of like clearing my head of things that didn't matter to the pandemic and just really, really focusing hard on the pandemic and how how I would fit in with the bureau, how I would fit in with the newspaper and make sure it was as, as, as low stress and as efficient as possible because, you know, all around us, you know, the world is falling apart. But that is the problem with right now because it started with the pandemic and then all of a sudden we seem to have 
like seriously, the world falling apart around us. And it's been two years of, of upheaval, um, social upheaval, global upheaval. How do you continue as a professional who has to cover these things to put one foot in front of the other every day when you're just in constant reactive mode? Yeah, I guess I've had to kind of come to terms with uh, the fact that we are in an era of perpetual crisis. It's not ending. It's one after the other after the other. And I think we as journalists have to be very nimble and open minded about what could happen next. You know, it's just not we're not returning to normal. We're not going back to some thing. I mean, so many of us have a hard time remembering two years ago anyway, um, but but we're not going back to that point. So we have to be very, very flexible. And I think, um, you know, we're just, it, it's a coping mechanism, but I think, you know, we're just taking one day at a time um, and just not trying to predict or have any huge expectations about how, how coverage will look and then how we'll have to, you know, rearrange our lives to cover it going forward. How has the pandemic changed you? Well, that's a tough one. I think for me, it's it's maybe kind of reevaluate everybody around me about how they deal with crisis. You know, I think um, everybody deals with it differently. And I think you have to be very tolerant of that. You know, some people and, and there's just there's so much, uh, you know, anguish and anxiety around us that, and it manifests itself in different ways in, in, in everyone. And I think I've done a lot of self-reflection on how I handle it and how everybody around me handles it. And it's all different. And I think, uh, you know, just being able to, to um, you know, kind of like we look at the news, anything could come and hit you at any moment. It's the same thing with personal relationships, you know, they're just, uh, or and, and the people who are close to me, you're just realizing that, okay, everybody is is looking at this in a different way. Everyone is under stress and it affects everybody, but but differently. So, um, you know, just kind of opening up my my mind to to be able to, to <laughs> accept all of that and, and really you know, there's, we talk a lot about resilience, you know, we have a lot of good news stories in our news coverage. And, and I certainly, you know, that's basically why, as I, as I said before, I've covered a lot of crises. That's why I like covering them because there are so many stories of resilience, but not everybody is resilient all the time. And I think uh, we have to, we have to be able to accept that and, and open up our minds to it. Heather, I want to take a step back to the beginning of your career. In fact, even further than that, back to when you were in school, because you didn't start out wanting to be a journalist, as I understand it. In fact, you wanted to be a diplomat. <laughs> is that <laughs> is that accurate? Like, how how did this change in in career path happen? It was foisted upon me. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, yeah, I started it. So my, my my parents ran a community newspaper, and I oh no I kidding. Thought, yeah, in Dundas, Ontario, and um, you know, just when I was I was just a kid, and uh, I didn't like that vibe at all. Why? You know, I didn't, didn't like it. Like <laughs> they were busy all the time. We were stressed out all the time, and you know, I just remember going to their to their office or to their newsroom. You know, uh, after hours, and it would be full of people who were always strung out and smoke everywhere, stale donuts. <laughs> this is the nineteen seventies, right? Everything was sticky and covered with covered with um, glue stick because they were laying out the paper by hand. And I, I just did, I didn't like that atmosphere at all. But then I got to university and 
you know, during my first week there, I was reading the student paper. I disagreed with something that somebody said, and I took him on. I had, I saw, I met him at a party and I took him on and he's like, you know, you should write that thing. So I did write that thing. And I'm like, Oh, I like this. <laughs> so I, I got an interest in it at a university, but I did, you know, still have this thing that I wanted to be a diplomat. But in the end, I, you know, I studied international relations. It was a recession when I graduated, but I didn't do the foreign service exam. So I went to journalism school instead. You know, speaking of when you started in the industry, I I can imagine it wasn't the most female tolerant or female populated sector at the time. How has journalism changed for women and what's what's the progress that you've noted over the years? It's changed dramatically. And I'll start out by saying, though, that I haven't had a lot of animosity thrown at me for being a woman. I've been, you know, at the beginning of my career, and I've always covered, you know, I've always covered money and power. And that's a very, very much a man's world. So I've always been a bit of an interloper there. Um, But I, you know, I haven't been treated poorly. Uh, You know, there's been an incident here or there, but, you know, I don't have any horror stories to tell. But I will say, um, over the you know over over the course of the, the the last two and a half three decades that I've been at this, there's been a huge change. You know, the majority of the people in my newsroom right now and at Canadian Press, uh, we're, we are women. Um, actually, here at the Toronto Star, we are almost all, we we just we have of, of eight of us, we have two men and one and six women. Um, and, and so that's really empowering. Um, and, you know, I think about it a lot right now when we are as an industry trying to become far more diverse. In terms of in terms of race, we are sorely lacking in racial diversity. Um, but I look at women all the time as a, an example of how that can change. With we can do it very deliberately, um, and in hiring and and in mentoring people over 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 the years, and working with journalism schools and bringing people up through the system. It takes a while, but once it happens, there's this momentum. Um, you know that right right now when we when we go to hire people and bring people on there's just no issue about whether or not it's going to be a man or a woman because it's fine. You know, there's just, it doesn't matter anymore because we automatically get a good mix. And I just really hope that that can happen eventually. And it is starting to happen in terms of racial diversity. Um, but it, it, it does take some, some deliberate steps along the way. It still hasn't happened at the very senior levels of, of media companies um, for sure. There's still a lack of balance there. Um, but I have a lot of hope that it will, because there are so many women, and coming up through the system. You talked about being deliberate in terms of hiring for diversity and in, in terms of setting up programs and mentorships that allow people from diverse backgrounds to consider a career in journalism. But then there is that issue at the top. How do you change that? I, I think it comes with time, but it also does come with, with making sure that you know, there's a bit of pressure all the time, right? Um, you know, we have uh, at, at the Star, our, our editor-in-chief right now is a woman, and our, our previous editor-in-chief was also a woman, and, and that's amazing. It's also pressure from the public. Like it would be almost unacceptable for it to be any other way. Um, so... I, th- I think, you know, that that converse, having that public conversation always helps. Um, and, you know, I think I would just say in terms of my my daily work, like I have to keep my eye on that all the time to make sure that there's a certain level of confidence. Um, I mean, to, to constantly be pushing. It takes it takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of confidence. Right. And you can you can get it. It can be very exhausting. Um, so. Uh, you know, I think that that kind of uh, kind of mutual support from within is always very useful and very helpful, but also the public pressure um, 
I mean, people care a lot about their media companies. They care a lot about who is representing uh, their views and, and you know, in politics, but also in, in the media. And so I, I think, you know, there's there's a two-way conversation there. Speaking of exhausting, you know, you've built up uh, your career at the same time. Uh, you've raised two kids. And as any working parent knows, um, that's a juggle. And, and sometimes it's, it's truly a struggle. Uh, the current federal government, as you know, Heather, has signed childcare deals with every province and territory. Uh, what, what kind of change do you think that this is going to bring forward for women and men? Well, I, you know, I just uh, just been writing a lot, quite a bit about this recently. And I, I, I think, uh, you know, it was, there's an immediate effect there in terms of, you know, people with, with children in daycare will get some checks right away. They'll, they'll be able to make ends meet a little bit more easily. Um, but, you know, over time, I think there will be, uh, with, with available daycare that's of high quality, accessible, um, you know, if that dream comes true, it could, it could take a lot of pressure off parents who really want to throw themselves into their career as well as into parenting. And, uh, you know, I have a lot of, uh, I have some very high hopes that that will become commonplace. You know, that whole scene of uh, when your kids are little that I went through and and I hear it all around me of, of you know, scrambling around for childcare and is the person going to work out and what if they fold and what if they, you know, <laughs> what if, what if, what if, right? You're always just one step away from everything collapsing all around you. Um, you know, I, I would really, really, hope that that uh, we will get to that stage, you know, perhaps within a few years. I mean, I don't want to be, I, I don't think that it's going to be a snap of the fingers and everything's solved, but I would hope within a few years as we build up capacity that that whole um, risk is gone, that that whole fear of, of okay, I'm not going to throw myself into my work because everything could collapse at any moment, that perhaps that will be, that will disappear. And, and I mean, of course, anything could, you know, family disasters happen and having a great daycare system is not going to solve that, but but it could, it could you know, significantly diminish the stress that parents of young children are going through very frequently. You once outsourced your federal election vote to your teenage sons. Uh, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so, you know, I part of the thing with, you know, having two kids at home and, and also trying to work all the time is that I basically I've had to just, they have had to make peace with the fact that they are going to hear about it all the time. So, so, you know, they do hear more than their fair share of, of whatever it is that's going on in my, in my, in my workplace. Um, so uh, I, I had thought, yeah, they, were, they were constantly asking me too, who am I voting for? Who am I voting for? And I'm always very reluctant to say, you know, just because I have to keep that that objectivity. Um, and, you know, there's some journalists who don't even vote for that very reason. So anyway, you know, at, at uh, I guess for the um, 2019 election, they were getting close to voting age. And I just said, OK, well, you know what? You guys tell me. You guys tell me who you want to vote for. But you have to decide between yourselves. about who's with. That's something else entirely. Right. To get two brothers to agree with each other. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, so so I. It was a fascinating exercise because, um, you know, they had to really figure out the, you know, the, how the whole system worked and, you, you know, how the, the what policies affected them. And they had, so they looked at all sorts of issues, you know, they, of course, because they're young, they looked at the environment and they looked at, you know, future job prospects. They had to figure out the, the local, municipal, provincial, federal, different, all those different uh, ways of voting and all the different voting systems. And they had to learn about their local candidates and who the options were. Um, and so it was, it was, it was pretty fun to go through and see it through their eyes. And, um, 
you know, in the end, they, they require quite a bit of coaching to to just figure out enough common ground to agree with each other. But uh, it, it was, I mean, that, that's more to do with with uh, personal relationships than it is to do with politics, right? You know, there are a lot more prominent women um, in prominent roles around the world now than there ever have been before. I look at uh, just in Ardern in New Zealand or uh, Christine Lagarde in, in Europe, Christian Freeland here in Canada. And of course, a prime example would be uh, Kamala Harris. But how does their presence actually change policy in your opinion? Does it does it make a difference to have women in charge? Yes, I think it does. I think it changes um it changes a few things. Uh, you know, it doesn't, I'm not one to say that, you know, if women were in the world, there would be no problems. Um, but I do think it, um, it, it changes, it changes the discourse to recognize that, you know, as soon as you get a, a prominent person like that in power, um, it, it validates women everywhere. Right. You know, I think, um, when, when Justin Trudeau said in 2015, why is your cabinet, you know, when he was asked the famous line there, why was he, when he was asked, why is his cabinet half women? And he said, because it's 2015. Um, I think that right away, just that statement, um, opened up a whole new arena for us in, in, in coverage of politics. It, it legitimized, you know, the equality and, as a result, we hold them to account for that, right? You know, it's not just like, okay, yippee, there's going to be half women in cabinet, but what are those women going to do? What, what are they, you know, how are they going to change things? And how are, you know, as, as reporters and journalists, how are we going to look at that? How are we going to make sure that that they're living up to their word or that it, you know, that, it, that it's more than skin deep and so forth. So I think it changes the conversation quite, quite dramatically. Um, and if you look at you know, how, how women in politics have been treated since then. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's serious business. It's not just, you know, uh, uh, you know, one or two token people here or there, or they're not just in, in, in low level jobs, right? If you look right now, they are running foreign policy, fiscal policy, defense, right? In our government. And so, if all these choices for for women across society and and for for girls too are looking up and coming, but it also really I think the more you have, the more it it makes a difference in 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 just in that, in that conversation for people who have already arrived. You know that they're not just taken as a as a token. Mm-hmm. You know we continue to deal with with COVID, whether you know we say it's gone or or it isn't. It's it's here. We're dealing with a lot of international unrest, a, a constantly evolving news cycle. What occupies your mind at night these days, Heather? What what keeps you up at night? I guess I'm really trying to figure out where the next crisis lies because you know, as I said earlier, you know, I, I feel like we're in this in this this era of perpetual crises, and how do we how do, how the heck do we take that into account into our planning and you know our framing of events? You know, we don't. You know, I look at the government right now trying to prepare for the next pandemic. And of course there will be another pandemic, but how do we know that the next pandemic is going to be treated with a vaccine and not some kind of other thing that we don't even, we can't even imagine yet. So that, 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 that weighs on me, you know, in, in terms of, um, you know, planning for my children's future or planning for, for, for coverage of the news. Um, how do we even start to anticipate and prepare ourselves and make sure that we have the tools to be able to deal with that when we can't really see what's coming at us? Um, so that's certainly, certainly weighing on me. I mean, there's some things that you can kind of anticipate and kind of plan. Um, and, you know, for sure, you know, the news business, we all thrive on the unexpected. 
but this is really something else, right? <laughs> this is really, uh, you know, to be able to be well-equipped to deal with the unexpected when it comes is a challenge for sure. Well, we're really lucky that we can uh, turn to you as regular Canadians to read what you're reporting and your analysis of situations, Heather. It's been a, a great pleasure to have the opportunity to to chat with you today. We're grateful that you take the time to be a part of the conversation here on The Honest Talk. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. That's a wrap. And thank you to our wonderful listeners across Canada and around the world for joining us. If you'd like to listen to previous episodes, you can subscribe to The Honest Talk wherever you get your podcasts, including on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our website, thehonesttalk.ca. Finally, a big thank you to our sponsor, RBC, which offers digital-first solutions, advice, and services that go beyond banking to help you realize your true potential. And that's what this podcast is all about. You can find more info at rbc.com slash business. But for now, stay healthy and stay safe. And we truly look forward to having you back soon for more of The Honest Talk.